A scientific miracle, it seems. This weekend, the CDC announced that most Americans can finally take off their masks indoors, including most school children. And the House of Representatives also announced that it would be lifting its mask mandate as well. It all happened just in time for Joe Biden's State of the Union address. I'm sure this has nothing to do with the change in policy, though, right? Right? Friends, it's time for Hold the Line. Welcome to Hold the Line. I'm Buck Sexton. They're dropping them all over the place. The masks, the mandates, the madness. It was predictable. In fact, we predicted it. Not a surprise, but this is exactly what's going on here. The science has changed just in time for the politics to change. Isn't that such a remarkable coincidence? Well, what exactly is going on here? We got Joe Biden addressing the nation tomorrow in his State of the Union address, and he doesn't have a lot to show for it. You got war in Ukraine, high inflation, wide open border, rising crime rates, lots of problems all over the place. Nothing to point out as a victory, but he's going to claim victory over COVID. And yet, let's just take a look at what's really going on here for a second, folks. Here's a CDC chart that shows prevention steps based on COVID-19, low, medium, or high community level I'm getting a little tingle from the old days of DHS, uh, or the earliest days, I should say, of DHS back in the day with the terror threat being orange or green or yellow or whatever, as if, oh no, it's an orange day threat. Should I leave my house? Maybe not. I don't know. And now you got all these things you're supposed to do. You know, we're going to be changing a little of this, a little of that, COVID mitigation steps. Friends, friends, let's just, let's just take a moment here. Take a deep breath. No mask on, by the way. Yeah, take a deep breath without a mask on. These people are nuts. They were wrong. Fauci's the worst. The Democrats politicized the crap out of all of this. They should be ashamed of themselves. They didn't stop COVID. They didn't even lessen or mitigate COVID. They just harassed every normal, rational, emotionally secure person in the country with the mask up and wear two masks and get three shots, four shots, 10 shots, as many shots as we tell you. These people are crazy and also craven. And you're seeing that right now because suddenly the rules are changing around COVID, around masks, all this stuff, because it's politically necessary for Democrats to change them. I give you many examples of this, but here's a good one. Representative Perlmutter has announced that masks are no longer required in the House of Representatives just in time for Biden's speech. Chair will take this occasion to update the Speaker's announced policies of January 4th, 2021, regarding the requirement to wear masks in the hall of the House during the coronavirus pandemic. Consistent with updated guidance from the attending physician, the Chair wishes to inform members that masks are no longer required in the hall of the House. Masks are no longer required in the House. Just in time for the State of the Union address. Ah, uh, the timing of this is so suspect, isn't it? Uh, but they want you to think that, no, this is just about the science. The science just happened to change at the perfect moment that it was necessary for Democrats because their polls are plummeting and their whole regime is a joke and everybody's realizing it at some level. Here's New York Governor, uh, Governor Kathy Hochul, for example, she's lifting the mask mandates in schools starting March 2nd. Announced this, though, right before the State of the Union. Watch. 
70 percent of the population right now lives in an area that's considered low to medium risk. And that's very positive. And in low to medium, their recommendation is that there's no longer a requirement that masks be worn indoors, and that includes schools in low and medium risk areas. So given the, the, the decline in our rates, our hospitalization, strong vaccination rates, and the CDC guidance, uh, my friends, the day has come. Today we are going to be announcing that we'll be lifting the statewide mask requirement in schools, and that'll be effective this Wednesday, March 2nd. Why not now? Why, why do we wait till Wednesday, March 2nd? Why not just say today? Uh, okay, because this is all just absurd to begin with, right? First of all, masking in school doesn't do anything. Doesn't do anything. And now Jen Psaki's out there saying the White House will have new federal mask guidelines very soon. Watch. On the situation we're all living in still, which is the pandemic becoming an endemic for a lot of Americans. We saw the new masking guidance from the CDC. Will the White House lift the federal mask mandate as it relates to airplanes for, inter for travel between states and beyond? Well, Peter, that doesn't expire until the middle of March, so I have nothing to preview on that front. We will have updated guidance for how we will all live around here coming soon to you soon. Uh, so I don't have anything to preview yet, but we'll have something to update you on soon. How soon? Very soon. Very soon. If they don't get rid of, understand this, if they don't get rid of mask mandates on planes, this thing is not over. And they're going to keep it going. And they're going to bring back other. Notice it's all in phases and colors and different levels and tiers. They're trying to control, control, keep that control of everybody through this COVID madness. After all the failure that they've had, after all the absurdity we have been through, they act like they've been correct with this stuff. They act like this has somehow worked. None of it worked. None of it worked. Nowhere can they show you a state, even a county, where mask mandates were successful in flattening the curve or turning things around or even dramatically changing the trajectory of COVID versus those states, those areas, even counties side by side. In the case of Los Angeles County and Orange County in California, guess what? Didn't make any difference. One had the mask mandate, one didn't. Didn't make any difference. In fact, I think Orange County actually did a little bit better than Los Angeles County. So that's quite interesting, isn't it? Um, but this is all political. It's been political for a long time. They were wrong, and they don't want to admit that. They also don't want to admit that they've done tremendous damage to the American psyche and that they weaponized COVID starting in 2020 for political purposes against Donald Trump. They created as much hysteria as possible. They had everyone masked up and then double masked, and they were arresting paddleboarders on the ocean by themselves because of the COVID threat. They were padlocking playgrounds to keep children out of them outside because of the COVID threat. These people were nuts. And they used this as a political weapon and as a club to bludgeon their political opponents at every opportunity. It's appalling what they've done. And now Joe Biden, because he realizes he's really made his party crazy. I mean, libs are nuts walking around outside still in New York City with masks on outside by themselves. I'm so scared of the virus. Some of these people are doing this are 20, 30, 40 years old. So scared of the virus. So they're wearing a mask outside. This is a mental health issue, not a virus health issue. Biden now saying, oh, maybe some people, the psychological impact of COVID-19 was, was too much for them. Watch. 
is a phenomenal negative psychological impact that COVID has had on the public psyche. And so you have an awful lot of people who are uh, notwithstanding the fact that, uh, that uh, things have gotten so much better for them economically uh, that they are thinking, but how do you get up in the morning feeling happy? Right. Happy that everything's all right. Democrats broke this country, at least half of it, psychologically, and now they can't repair it. So yeah, it's their fault for acting like cynical, manipulative, authoritarian lunatics during COVID. No upside, only downside from this. All right, we'll have more on the about face over mask mandates with author and columnist David Marcus in a moment. But first, let's talk about protecting your home. How devastated would you be if a criminal stole all the equity in your home? This crime is happening all over the U.S. There's one company, though, that stands between you and these thieves, Home Title Lock. The FBI calls home title fraud one of the fastest growing crimes, which is why you need to go to HomeTitleLock.com, America's leader in home title protection. Here's the problem. The deed to your home is the only document that proves you own it, and the deeds to all our homes are online now. In minutes, a criminal can forge your name off the deed to your home and refile as the new owner. The crime can cause you to spend a fortune in legal fees when thieves take out loans in your name. It can even lead to eviction. Common identity theft services do not protect you from this crime. HomeTitleLock.com is your peace of mind that your deed to your home is protected. Visit HomeTitleLock.com. Again, that's HomeTitleLock.com. We'll be right back with David Marcus in a moment. Masks and vaccine cards, two essentials that have taken over the everyday lives of New Yorkers, finally getting phased out in the Big Apple as leaders are looking for a return to daily life, like a pre-pandemic world, you know, that thing that we should have done a long time ago. In a statement yesterday, Mayor Eric Adams said, at the end of this week, we will evaluate the numbers and make a final announcement on Friday. If we see no unforeseen spikes and our numbers continue to show a low level of risk, New York City will remove the indoor mask mandate for public school children. Effective Monday, March 7th, New York City's numbers continue to go down day after day. So as long as COVID-19 indicators show a low level of risk and we see no surprises, we'll also lift key to NYC requirements, as in the authoritarian, pointless, tyrannical, awful vaccine mandate that didn't stop the spread at all in New York City, despite the very high vaccination rate. Joining me now with reaction to all this, columnist for Fox News and the New York Post, David Marcus. David, good to see you. Hey, I'm back. It's amazing how quickly the science changes when the politics benefit from it of the Democrat Party. What a surprise. Yeah, I mean, look, I I think we all have to be happy. Um, You know, my son's in the New York public school system and soon he won't have to to wear his mask. But yeah, I mean, clearly there's mixed emotions here because you see this stuff and you really do feel like what took so long? This should have been done uh, a long time ago. I want to put this as a win in Adam's column. Um, I don't know if de Blasio would have done this right now, Um, but I'm still going to be happy about it and and, and not just say, you know, too little, too late, at least at least for my son's sake. You know, I'm still I'm still a little angry. I have to wonder, do you think, you know, Jen Psaki was asked about this, uh, whether they would get rid of the mask mandate on planes? I I think that they're going to keep that because I think they need to maintain some area of masking because then it's easier to bring it back next wintertime and they're going to tell a lot of people in a lot of Democrat places to mask up again. Uh, But that's kind of remarkable. I mean, so you're going to go through, assuming they leave it in place, and I think they will, uh, on planes and for, you know, for transit, 
you're going to then go through 99% plus of your life totally unmasked. But when you get on a plane, you got to mask up because of COVID. That, that seems to be where we're heading. I mean, you've been right too often on this for me to doubt that that's true. And, and I think that it probably is. I, I think if there is an off-ramp to that and, and, and to you know, some of the other things that may linger, it's, it's really to, to get as many people as possible not wearing masks anymore. You know, that, that viral Saturday Night Live, as annoying as it was to me, because we've all been saying this for two years, but the one where Saturday Night Live was kind of giving you know, people permission to doubt some of this stuff, uh, you know, I hope is a step in the right direction. And I also think that those of us who weren't following you know, COVID correctness, we can help to sort of provide a landing strip. Like, I, you know, I saw a couple of friends of mine, really wonderful people who posted something along the lines of like, our kids went into a restaurant for the first time since whenever, right? And you see that and your, your initial reaction is, what's wrong with you? But maybe the more, um, maybe the better reaction is, okay, good. Applaud that step and, and hope that more come. Because um, if we don't get an overwhelming amount of support for getting rid of this stuff, you're absolutely right. A lot of it's going to linger. Well, see, but this is where I, I worry that if we allow this transition, I mean, you're, you're being a, a little more... Um, what's the word, forgiving than I am about this right now, which I, I can understand. There's different approaches to it. But I worry, David, that if we just move on to, all right, everybody, we're getting rid of these things. Yay, I'm glad. And don't actually tell them, you know, you never should have done this, right? This was never a good, it's not like it stopped being necessary to wear masks tomorrow or will stop tomorrow. And that's the normal way to look at this. It's you, I want everyone to understand that they never should have done this. This was, this was all madness the whole time. So I worry that if we allow it to just be, we've been given back our freedoms instead of how dare they have taken our freedoms, that this will just all come roaring back at some point. Because I think a lot of Democrats like this. I think they like this world of getting lectures from Fauci and putting the two masks on their face and doing all this. I think they enjoy it. I think that's true, but I think we can walk and chew gum to some degree in terms of absolutely we have to hold public officials um, and public policy that the feet to the fire there, that, that this can never happen again. You know, I don't know if you noticed, but the New York Post is reporting that Andrew Cuomo ran a political ad today. So, I mean, the, the attempts to rehabilitate themselves are already starting. But I do think on the level of, of personal relationships, that's where I think that we can take a breath and, and maybe just think it instead of say it when it when it comes to some of the crazier things that, that those in our lives have been doing over the past two years. I mean, what should be the reaction in places like New York now that I mean, it's obvious that this stuff is political to anybody? I mean, it's, it's now beyond doubt when they're when they're getting rid of all this in the days, the, the hours really before the State of the Union address so that Biden can try to create some kind of victory lap. I mean, this is so obvious that I think even the biggest shills for the Democrats have to go like, well, yeah, I mean, they're trying to time this. But what do we say to people who are told, uh, you know, no, no wedding for you, no visiting your parents as they're dying in the hospital? While, of course, BLM marches were happening everywhere and Democrats, you know, I, I, I'm, I don't know, David, someone's got to help me here. I'm, I'm actually full of rage about all of this and I'm, I'm not giving up on that. No, you shouldn't. And, and I do think that we have to point out that this was overtly political. And as you say, we have to make sure that it's perfectly clear that, that nothing like this can ever happen again. And, and like you, I'm, I'm not confident that it won't. I mean, even, Ad, even Adams left room for that, right? Like, yeah. what happens if there's some, you know, even less serious but more contagious strain that comes up? Are we back here again in a month? 
that, you know, that's certainly, that's certainly possible. So I, you know, I, I do think that to the extent that we can show as we have been that the Democrats position on this really depends more on poll numbers than COVID numbers, that's been convincing to a lot of the American people and almost like, almost like, uh, Biden predicting, right? Like, here's what Russia will do in terms of false flags or whatever. To the extent that we can predict, watch out, like, this is how they're going to do that. And it lines up, um, which we have been doing. I, I, I hope that's effective in showing the American people just how much of this was driven by politics and not by science. Apparently, New York City's vaccine requirement to work still remains in place. So private sector workers in New York have to be fully vaccinated. I don't even. I don't even know. By the way, can I just say I follow stuff all the time, but I'm I'm not even able to keep up with. So wait, now do you have to get a? Were you supposed to get a booster or, or you know? I, I don't even know where the rules really stand. But so you still have to technically get a shot to go into the office, even though we're getting rid of the shot requirement everywhere else. Is that where it is? Yeah, that's 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 exactly where it is. And um, as a Nets fan, Brooklyn Nets fan, I can point out to you that. Uh, Kyrie Irving is now allowed to be in the stands at a Brooklyn Nets game at the Barclays Center, but he can't play. So, I mean, I mean that, that's, that's, that's sort of how absurd is, is he can be physically in the stands with all kinds of people, but he can't be one of 10, you know, one of 10 guys and I guess two referees on the court because the workplace mandate's still there. I don't think it includes the booster, but I've been asking around. I've been asking some people who I who I think would know, like why that wasn't part of this. I haven't gotten very good answers, and I can't quite figure it out. David Marcus, everybody. David, thanks so much, man. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. Russian President Vladimir Putin is finding himself increasingly isolated these days, but he certainly got one friend standing by his side: Syrian dictator Bashar al-Assad. We have more on that and the situation on the ground in Ukraine with senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, Bill Roggio, when we come back. First, I want to talk to you about protecting your online data. A lot of companies promise your privacy is guaranteed, but we know that's not true. That's why you need a new privacy and cybersecurity application tool called Secure. Spelled S-E-K-U-R, Secure is using proprietary encryption and offering secure instant messaging and email. With Secure, all of your communication is based on servers and data centers hosted in Switzerland without using any of the big tech platforms out there. Privacy is a big issue now. Without real security, people can read your emails, messages, even your bank information. Secure will never mind your data, never ask for your phone number. It's your solution to stop the constant theft of your digital identity online. It costs only $5 for the messenger, only $10 for the messenger and email combo package. Go to secure.com and take back your privacy today. That's S-E-K-U-R.com. Use promo code BUCK for 25% off. We'll be right back with more. Hold the line. Russia has at least one ally on its side, Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. During a recent phone call with President Putin, Assad praised Russia's military invasion into Ukraine and denounced what he called Western hysteria surrounding it, saying it was a, quote, correction of history and restoration of balance which was lost in the world after the breakup of the Soviet Union. The unlikely friendship is a result of Russia's intervention in the Syrian civil war in 2015. Will it be enough support for Putin, given what's going on here? Joining me now with reaction... Senior Fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, Bill Roggio. Bill, good to see you. Thanks, Buck. Great to see you. Hey, Bill, let's start with the Russian intervention back in the Syrian civil war in 2015. How did that come about? Why were the Russians so invested in Syria? And and what was the result of, of their military, heavy military presence in the country? 
Russia and uh, Russian and Syrian ties do go back uh, decades during the Cold War. Um, Bashar al-Assad's father was an ally of the Russians, and the Russians intervened, and they saw a chance. This is a period of when Russia began uh, operating outside of the European theater. It saw an opportunity to expand, to get access to the port um, in inside in Syria and the Mediterranean, that expand Russian influence in the Eastern Mediterranean, and to help an ally. And, and it really helped cement Russia's foothold in this area of the Middle East, where it deteriorated after the end of the Cold War. So what was the Russian deployment like in Syria? What, what kind of forces did they put there? And, and who were they fighting against? How effective were they? Yeah, they were, first they were fighting against the various jihadists and some so-called Syrian rebel groups who often were aligned with the jihadists. And the jihadists would be an al-Qaeda branch that was there, that still remains there, as well as the Islamic State. So those were the enemies. Um, and then there are these various factions that often aligned with the al-Qaeda, um, the al-Qaeda affiliates based inside of Syria. The Russians provided air. They had a significant uh, air wing that was based there. These were used to both uh, fixed wing and helicopters to conduct the long range strike against jihadist targets. They had military advisors to help bol bolster civilian forces and thousands of Russian troops as well were operating inside of Syria, even though Russia maintains that uh, they, its troops weren't on the front line. We saw a lot of evidence that Russian troops were indeed engaged in active combat inside of Syria. And was there any sense that the Russians were using Syria as a testing ground for either tactics or weapon systems that they could use, for example, in the Ukrainian military intervention that's underway right now? Yeah, any military intervention such as this is always a testing ground, uh, as you, you properly state, for future conflicts. So the Russians help to, it helps them develop their tactics. Um, in the case, they're fighting jihadists, so it's a low-intensity warfare, but it helps their pilots with, uh, with bombing, uh, targeting, uh, navigation in difficult situations, um, the planning of airstrikes, things of that nature, and as well, and anytime you get your ground forces, particularly special operations forces, you give them actual combat experience. That's something that can be passed on, not only used in future conflicts, but your, your military is seasoned with veterans of conflict. That's very helpful in future conflicts. And so was the Russian intervention from the perspective of, say, Putin, was that successful in Syria? And what's the status of it today? Yeah, I think the Russian intervention was very uh, successful inside Syria. It propped up uh, Bashar al-Assad, who was really on the ropes by the time the Russians intervened. Uh, the Iranians also played a significant role. The Iranian-backed militias, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, all um, provided advisors and even um, uh, combat teams to fight alongside the Syrians as well. This combination... Um, it really, you, you have, I mean, Assad really controls most of the country except for the north, the province of Idlib, and then some nor the northern border areas with Turkey, where there's a uh, U.S.-backed Kurdish uh, militia, which is essentially a terrorist organization known as the Kurdistan Workers' Party. So these are areas that are out of control, but Assad is in power. He controls most of the country. Most of the fighting has stopped in areas under his control. So Russia can definitely, and Russia has access to a 
a Mediterranean port, and it and, and it has an ally in the Middle East. Something that it it really had uh, its relations in the Middle East had really deteriorated since the end of the Cold War. By the way, in the call that occurred between Assad and Putin, Assad said that Syria stands with the Russian Federation based on its uh, its conviction that its position is correct, and because confronting NATO expansionism is right for Russia. Has anyone else uh, of Russia's allies come out with such a strong statement of, yeah, this invasion is fantastic? And Belarus, I suppose, is a client state, but is there anyone else out there? You know, I I consider Syria to be a client state of, of both Russia and Iran at this point. Both of those countries are highly influential in propping up Assad. So yeah, besides Belarus and Russia, there is really no one. I think North Korea may have uh, come out. I'm not necessarily sure if it was in support of Putin as much as it was a denunciation of the United States and, and NATO. So, but yeah, he's had, he's, Putin is isolated diplomatically, but I think he's made this calculation that this was going to happen, that it was more important for him to suffer diplomatic and economic um, setbacks because of this. Um, it was more important to get in control of Ukraine and it would suffer those diplomatic and economic setbacks. And we've seen a fair amount of reporting about special Chechen uh, forces and, and, and other groups, including some mercenary groups from parts of what would be the former Soviet Union. Um, but in, in the Chechen case specifically, there are um, Islamic fighters who are supposedly tasked with tracking down Zelensky and his family. At least that was the reporting recently on this issue. Is it possible that just out of the really the politics of it, the symbolism of it, that we may see some of Bashar, uh, Bashar al-Assad's forces deployed to help out in Ukraine, or is that too far afield? I think that might be too far afield for Assad. He's still contending with uh, a lot of issues in his country. As noted, you have Idlib in those northern areas controlled by the Kurds. I think he needs all of his forces. As far as the Chechens go, these would be the Chechen military. Remember, in the Caucasus, the Russians fought the um, Islamists there, and it uh, it used the Khadarovs, President Khadarov in Chechnya, and his fight, his uh, military to help suppress that. And they were successful in, sub- that, in suppressing that insurgency. You don't hear any news coming out from that. And so these would be conventional military forces, I believe. I don't, I don't see the, as bad as the Russians are, they don't get in bed with jihadists. They have their own problem with jihadists, and jihadists do not like the Russians. Do the Russians, I mean, what, what was the lesson just, and we've only got about a, a minute, Bill, but the, the le- lesson the Russians took from their invasion and, and, and military incursion into Chechnya? Yeah, I think the, the lessons, not just there, but in Georgia, as well as in Crimea, was that, you know, if it properly applies force and if, it, and, and if it's often brutal and if it's organized, that it can succeed in difficult situations. So when people are talking about, well, Ukraine can mount an insurgency and be successful against the Russians, the Russians have had success in suppressing insurgencies, not just in the Caucasus and in Chechnya, but also in Syria. That's another way that the intervention in Syria has improved the Russian military. It's going to prepare them for a potential uh, Ukrainian uprising or insurgency. Bill Roggio, always good to see you, Bill. Thanks so much. Thanks, Buck. Always a pleasure. The Russian ruble tanked today as economic sanctions were taking their toll. Will it be enough to make Putin reconsider his invasion of Ukraine? I'll ask former CIA Deputy Division Chief Bruce Klingner coming up after the break. Stay with us. 
The Western response to Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine appears to be taking its toll. The Russian ruble crashed to a record low against the U.S. dollar, at one point losing nearly half of its value before Russian markets closed. The meltdown comes as the U.S. and a number of European nations agreed to sever Russian banks out of the so-called SWIFT financial system, which allows Russia to participate in Western banking. In addition to sanctions, Western allies are stepping up arms shipments to support Ukrainian resistance. The U.S., EU countries, and NATO have all announced millions in new lethal aid, including anti-tank weapons, surface-to-air missiles, and other equipment. So could the Western response be enough to tip the scales in favor of Ukraine? Let me bring in Bruce Klingner, former CIA Deputy Division Chief for Korea and Senior Research Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Bruce, thanks for being with us. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, before I get to the Western response to all this, I just wanted your take, because I think there's so much back and forth over this, on the Ukrainian fight back against this invasion. How is it going now that we're a few days into the Russian blitzkrieg? Well, we are only a few days in, and Russia has a lot more forces still outside of Ukraine that they could throw into the fight. Uh, but the Ukraine has been doing an amazing job of resisting, I think, outpacing all predictions of how long they would last or how long they would uh, be able to resist uh, Russian forces going into the capital of Kiev. And, and certainly, if I was in a barroom fight, I'd want a, a Ukrainian as a wingman or, or better yet, have them do the fight, and I'll buy him the beer afterwards. Now, what do you think about what has been done by outside powers friendly to Ukraine, whether it's NATO allies, the U.S. specifically, EU countries? Are, are we doing what should be done at this point? Is there more that should be done than what you're seeing so far? There, there's always more we would like, but I think what's really striking is the reactions we've seen by Europeans. I mean, we have the Swiss sort of overcoming their usual neutrality and they're willing to take financial actions against Russia. We have the Swedes sending uh, weapons to Ukraine, the first time they've done that since 1939 and, and supporting Finland. Uh, the Germans, you know, before only sent 2,000 helmets, now they're willing to send thousands of anti-tank anti-air missiles. So, uh, and and they've really worldwide, we've had a lot of financial, not only sanctions, but financial warfare against Russia. As you pointed out, the, the ruble is down. I think the, the Russian stock market was down 40 or more percent. Uh, we're really doing a lot on the financial side. And it's Ukraine is obviously taking the brunt of the, the military uh, weapons side. Some, including a member of uh, Congress, uh, have brought up some serious uh, escalation from what we've already done. Jen Psaki here was fielding a question about whether a no-fly zone, of course the U.S. would be operating, would be a good idea. Here's what she said. He wants to invest. On military, is there any way in which the U.S. would support a no-fly zone over Ukraine? Well, here's what's important for everybody to know about a no-fly zone. What that would require is implementation by the U.S. military. It would essentially mean the U.S. military would be shooting down planes, Russian planes. That is definitely escalatory. That would potentially put us into a place where we're in a, a military conflict with Russia. That is not something the president wants to do. So that's a no on that. that those are all the reasons why that's not a good idea. Seems like there's a red line that both parties, Republican and Democrat, have drawn on this issue. You think that that's going, first of all, you, you agree with her and also you think it will hold? Well, as, as impressed as we are uh, and as much as we're praying for Ukraine, they are not a member of NATO. So that's a, a critical difference is unlike other European nations that are members of NATO that we are obligated by the treaty to defend, U Ukraine is not a member of NATO. So uh, they, uh, we do not have that obligation. So it's clearly a, a red line uh, that uh, would, would be crossed if 
Ukraine had been part of, of NATO. And that was one of the reasons why many were arguing against uh, bringing Ukraine into NATO, because it was seen as you know so aligned with, with Russia and certainly Putin sees it as within his sphere of influence. So bringing Ukraine into NATO, if we do that after all these hostilities are over, certainly would continue to be a contentious issue. This weekend, Putin put his nuclear forces on high alert, citing aggressive statements from NATO and tough financial sanctions. This is seen as a pretty serious concern, obviously. Uh, what do you make of it? Well, he's he's raising the, the threat level. He Before, he gave a fairly direct, though in, still indirect, threat of outsiders not to, influ- not to uh, go into or impede Russian operations in Ukraine, uh, threatening that they would see re- uh, a response unlike any that they'd seen in history, a, a reference to nuclear weapons. Uh, but by doing this, I think it reflects how badly things are going for Russian forces. Certainly, they're disappointed that they didn't go into Kyiv as, as quickly as they thought they would. The, the Russian forces are really uh, you know, getting hurt badly by Ukrainians. Uh, So I think this is a way not only of of raising the threat against outsiders coming to Ukrainian help, uh, but also, you know, trying to intimidate others to to back off even supplying Ukraine with the the anti-tank and anti-air weapons. Bruce, it's not just Western nations joining the fight. Japan recently announced it would be imposing sanctions against Russian banks and key government officials, including Putin himself. What can you tell us about this? I haven't seen a lot of reporting on uh, the Japanese reaction to the invasion of Ukraine. Well, and and also there were statements by former Prime Minister Abe uh, over the weekend that uh, Japan should move beyond its its reluctance to host U.S. nuclear weapons or even advocating a nuclear sharing agreement such as the U.S. has with our NATO allies. Uh, That was really breaking new ground for Japan, which has historically since the end of World War II, when they suffered uh, two atomic weapons explosions to end World War II, uh, they have had a very strong uh, push against nuclear weapons. And they have what's called the three nuclear no's of they will not uh, produce, they will not possess, or they will not allow nuclear weapons into their territory. But but all of that, I think, reflects the, the great concern that only not only Japan, but other U.S. allies has as to the situation going on with Russia and Ukraine. And also, Japan has been very concerned the last several years about Chinese actions, uh, the bullying tactics and intimidating tactics and policies against uh, not only Japan, but other nations in the East China Sea and the South China Sea. And that led uh, Japan to overcome what had been a reluctance even to identify China as a threat publicly. Uh, And they've done that for the last several years and implemented a lot of uh, defense reform and augmented their military forces to improve their capability to deter and defend against a Chinese threat. And the last year, Japanese senior officials, including Abe and the current uh, prime minister, have all had very strong comments by Japanese standards, uh, more directly linking Japan's security to that of Taiwan. And there was reporting over the weekend that something was fired out of North Korea, and we all usually know what that means. Did we get corroboration on that? And what do you think the calculus is there? Is that is, is China telling North Korea to act up a little bit to help take some of the heat off of China for helping Russia? What's going on here? 
Well, I think it's North Korea really uh, operates autonomously. Uh, and they did a lot of missile launches in January as they have in previous years. Uh, this one, they still haven't identified uh, the specific missile or released photos as they often do. Uh, but they did say that it was really a practice run for a satellite uh, launch. They released photos taken from this missile of the Korean Peninsula. So they have been working towards a, a satellite capability. This would seem to be a, a photographic or electro-optical uh, satellite. So I think it's a, a dry run for what would likely be a longer range uh, satellite launch later. If that flies over Japan out to a greater distance, it's going to be very escalatory, even though they'll say, oh, it's civilian, it's not military. Well, if it uses ballistic missile technology, as it would, it's yet another violation of UN resolutions, as they've been doing for several years now. Bruce, appreciate you bringing the insights to us today. Thanks so much. Well, thanks for having me. Coming up next, a Ukrainian sailor was arrested for sinking his Russian boss's $7.7 million luxury yacht. I'll tell you why he did it and more coming up in Quick Hits. NPR gives out advice on how to stay cool for the people who still want to wear face masks. And former Senator Al Franken predicts Trump will win in 2024 and it will be the last Democratic election ever because the hysteria just never stops with these libs. we got those stories and more in Quick Hits. Let's get to it. Uh, so the libs are trying to figure out how do they walk away from all the COVID madness and never have to actually have any introspection never have to really think about, did we just do all this for no reason? Were we totalitarian, lunatic, masked police of everybody around us with no real scientific basis for this whatsoever? In fact, it was just absurd. It was stupid. Uh, how do they deal with this? Well, they want to tell people, you know, keep masking up if you feel like it. That's not a big deal. NPR. Yeah. They got an op-ed that says, it can be lonely out there as the solo masker in a sea of exposed chins and noses. Feeling awkward in your mask? Here's how to stay cool. Number one, ignore people. Number two, focus on the task at hand, then get out of there. Number three, remember why you're wearing a mask in the first place. Well, let's take these one by one, shall we? Ignore people. Um, oh, so now they want to ignore people because they used to be telling you to be the mask police. So it wasn't just you, what, you were going to wear a mask. You'd go say, pull your mask up over your nose. Why isn't your mask up? These people are crazy. Focus on the task at hand. Here's a task for you. Breathe normally, libs. Stop being crazy. Doesn't save you. Doesn't stop you from getting COVID. You probably already got COVID. Most of the country got COVID. And then remember why you're wearing a mask in the first place. Yeah, why? Why are you wearing a mask, libs? Just wondering. You want to give us an answer to that one? Don't seem like you do, but they like to pretend. Oh, it stops the spread. No, it doesn't. Oh, it protects you from other people's droplets. No, not really. So what was that all about? They don't really, they, they don't really care. It's all about the politics of it. It was all about making it feel good at the time for them. Political power, making other people obey them. They love all this stuff. Now on to Ukraine situation. A Ukrainian sailor has sunk his Russian boss's $7.7 million super yacht a uh, Ukrainian man was arrested for partially sinking his Russian tycoon boss's yacht in Spain in protest over the Kremlin's invasion of Ukraine. The 55-year-old was taken into custody after he allegedly opened several valves to intentionally flood the 156-foot-long vessel 
When officers arrived to arrest him, the crew member allegedly said, my boss is a criminal who sells weapons that kill Ukrainian people. Hmm. Interesting. Um, I don't know if $7 million counts as a super yacht. I'm just going to put that out there. I'm just going to say, I mean, it's, kind of, it's a yacht for sure. Super yacht? Hmm. Not that I have any yacht. I mean, I can't even afford a little dinghy with the little motor on the back of it or a, yeah, probably even a fancy canoe. Former Senator Al Franken predicts Trump will win in 2024. It'll be the last Democratic election, he says. It's a, look, before we get into that, I mean, these, like these Democrat leftist types, what are they even talking about here? Predicts Trump's going to win. It'll be the last election over. Based on what? Well, let's hear the hysteria. Then we can make fun of him. And by the way, when you say that kids will look up and see Donald Trump's picture, mm-hmm. uh, the president, They'll see Donald Trump, then they'll see Biden, and then they'll see Donald Trump again, and he'll still be president when these kids are in school. <laughs> because you know, he's just becoming ill. That's it. It's over. It'll be a dictatorship. I mean, it'll be an authoritarian regime. It'll, we will not have a democratic election again. I mean, every it'll be like Hungary or something like that, and it'll all be fraud and, you know. And based on what exactly here? But they still say this stuff because Republicans would go along with the dictatorship, sure. Who were the people that were shutting down your business and not letting you see loved ones as they were in the hospital, shutting down your, uh, shutting down weddings and funerals and all this stuff? Because, you know, science, Democrats, libs, they're the ones that push for all this stuff. But the authoritarians, the scary people who want to be in charge of the Republicans, delusional. But who's the real enemy? Nancy Pelosi is very clear on this one. Forget about Putin. The real enemy are... Republicans in this country when it comes to assaults on democracy. Watch. As we talked about Ukraine on the trip, uh, when we talked about the fact that the invasion of the assault on Ukraine was an assault on democracy, Barbara took the uh, uh, time to talk about assaults on our democracy in our own country. Putin has, was engaged in trying to disrupt our own elections. But separate and apart from that, what's going on in our country about uh, the vote and the, the role that you're playing to fight for passage in the Senate and in the rest on voting rights in our country. Sure. Once again, Madam Speaker, connecting what's taking place abroad to what's taking place in our. That's it for tonight's Hold the Line. The No Spin News with Bill O'Reilly is up next. Shields high.